Good morning. We reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is all in the beginning. everyone you're tuned in to evidence of design on 100.9 fm wxir in rochester my name's jason taylor host of evidence of design joined in wxir's studios by my good friend and co-host mary lawrence good morning our other normal co-host matt treadwell can't be here with us today so mary just you and me on saturday april 24th 2021 that means this is a live show today we'd be glad to have your participation What might you participate on? Well, we are talking about two things today, the first of which is Earth Day. So we just celebrated, I believe, our 51st 51st Earth Day this year. That's right. And so we're going to talk about Earth Day. We're going to talk about local proposals in Rochester to fight climate change and also proposals nationwide to fight climate change. The Biden administration just this week held its first international summit and proposed that the United States would reduce its CO2 emissions by a a, a large percent in less than a decade. So we'll talk about that and the implications of it and whether or not it's large enough to actually, well, save our planet and species from disastrous effects from climate change. But more importantly, we're going to take a look at at the local scene as well. So first half of today's show, talking about climate change and the celebration of Earth Day. Second half of today's show, we'll be joined by a returning guest, Graham Hughes. All of us will be in discussion about the proposed formation of the so-called Super League in European soccer. What a fun story this is. It has since been disbanded, at least for the moment, but the proposal was to essentially take the richest, most wealthy, and powerful teams in European soccer, 
band them all together and have them compete in their own league, very similar to how we do American sports with the NFL or the NBA. That would have profound implications for European soccer, though, because European soccer does not operate that way with these sort of American-style closed elite sports. And the way European soccer operates has been, well, it's very important for international soccer, you know, global soccer, but also European soccer and ensuring that teams and players can really, you know, make it the best for themselves through, through a what they would call a meritocratic system as opposed to a, a more closed, exclusive, non-meritocratic system. So we're talking about that story through the lens of what our show is all about, which is critiquing income and wealth inequality. We think there is way too much economic inequality in society, and we believe that there should be less of it, and we propose solutions to that. That's all of what we'll be talking about on today's show. You can participate by giving us a call live in studios at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585 585- 219-8889. You can also stay in touch with us on our social media handles, Facebook and Twitter at Radio EOD. Mary, are we able to broadcast live on Facebook Live? We are... Uh... Sorry, my mic was not on for some reason. <laughs> that happens every week, and it's just the, my favorite thing, where it's just <laughs> like the first thing Mary says is always off the mic. <laughs> so to be fair, as I'm setting up Facebook, I do have to type a lot. I don't want the typing to come through, so... Yeah. Uh, don't worry, guys. I'm not generally terrible at turning my mic on. No, but no, no. Uh, yes, we are live on Facebook, so you can join us in the comments there if you'd like to add to the show without calling in. And see us live in WXIR Studios. You can find that on Radio EOD. That's our Facebook page, Radio EOD. Or give us a call in studios, 585-219-8889. Mary, why don't we start today's conversation by talking about Earth Day and what we celebrated or what we have to worry about upcoming for climate change here uh, in Rochester and beyond. So I believe this Thursday was the celebration of the 51st Earth Day. I still remember when you covered this topic last year. It was my first time really learning about Earth Day. Be like, oh yeah, so that was formed in the 1970s as part of a growing climate movement. And it's really changed its focus to be more expansive in recent, well, years and decades as part of really fighting climate change. And not just so-called like saving the trees, but actually fighting climate change, restructuring how our societies and economies work. Is that correct? I think so. I, I mean, obviously, I wasn't there. So the first Earth Day did happen in 1970. And there was certainly an environmental movement that probably also included some of the things that we are talking about today. But just over the past 51 years, the situation has become a lot more dire, and now it has to include many more facets to it um, than, than it did earlier. Yeah, so this week, well, first, let's back up and say that previously on the show, we had an organization called the Rochester's people the rochester people climate coalition <laughs> that's the best introduction i've ever done to something the, well the, the the people's climate coalition it no, no longer exists and it has been reformatted into the climate accelerator is that correct mary and they held a 22 day long well campaign to raise awareness about climate change and the solutions we can take to fight climate change and this thursday this past earth day 
they have their keynote, their their last um, address about uh, you know the 22 day plan, and uh, someone named Vic, Vic Barrett gave the keynote address. What 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 did they talk about on this uh, climate accelerators keynote address about climate change? So I am just going to say I have to go off my notes because for some reason my internet's not working. So I don't have my notes on this, but. From memory, for the most part, uh, Vic Barrett was talking primarily about intersectionality within climate justice. So one of I mean, one of the key terms that Vic was using over and over and was was invoked a lot during the other parts. So I wasn't there for the full 22 days, but I was there for the full last day. Um, And Vic's keynote was about half of the, the last day. But the a huge topic that came up was this idea of climate justice. Um, the idea of environmental racism was also talked about. And I think these are relatively new understandings that are becoming more widespread. So climate justice is, you know, this idea that not just that we have to fight climate change by just fighting like you said, not just like saving the trees or not just recycling and making those steps to protect the, the climate through environmental, uh, through an environmental framework. It also is an understanding that climate change and global warming is affecting certain communities in a, in a worse way, really. So I guess to be more straightforward, black and brown communities tend to be at the forefront of climate crises. And so this idea of climate justice is recognizing that that is the case and fighting climate change, not just in order to protect the planet, which is, you know, is the goal in general, but specifically to help these communities that are destroyed over and over by climate crises. Some examples are, you know, like in New Orleans, the communities that were really destroyed, um, I am blanking on the name of the hurricane that happened, Katrina. Uh, Katrina. The uh, the communities that were destroyed and were not able to be rebuilt because the families maybe didn't have insurance money um, and were generally poorer communities were primarily communities of color. And that is not an isolated issue. In New York City, the communities that are closest to the water that are facing in the next few decades are facing being wiped out, like physically, that their land will not be land anymore, uh, are generally communities of color. And, And not just black and brown communities, but also indigenous communities. And so Earth Day has become more of a moment to talk about climate justice and what it mean, what climate change means for communities that are already structurally oppressed and that this is just another way for that oppression to manifest and that that's really a huge problem. That's a powerful point, Mary, because it's worth remembering or taking into context that when we talk about climate change, it affects every single human being on this planet, very similar to how COVID-19 affects everyone. And we can talk about how the vaccine distribution has been you know, inequitably distributed and how that will eventually affect us back here in the United States, you know, the most wealthy and powerful country 
uh, with the highest vaccination rates, but still not immune to mutating viruses across the country or across the world. The same can be said about climate change, but in slightly different ways, where the most highly uh, polluting countries are the wealthiest in the world. So the United States emits the most CO2 emissions per capita. So we as US citizens are the biggest climate polluters per capita in the world. You know, we're followed by China and then followed by other uh, typically, you know, the largest of nations and the wealthiest of nations. However, the countries that are most affected by the effects of climate change tend to be the poorest. Those in the global south or closest to the equator just so happens, you know, how history and <laughs> conquest has played out is that those countries in those areas tend to not be the uh, the wealthiest and most powerful as of now. And so uh, generally, just to make an aside, generally because of imperialism. Right. So the wealthiest countries did have a hand in that in many cases as well. Yeah, just how history has is, is happened to play out. Exactly. And so it stands, you know, it stands to reason that these poorest countries, typically most black and brown, are going to be hit first and hardest by the effects of climate change, whereas their economies might be devastated, unsalvageable, and, and their, you know, their living ecosystem uninhabitable. And that would cause great migration of people. And of course, those people would want to come to the places that are more livable, such as upstate New York and Rochester. And of course, we're already having uh, <laughs> the bitterest of debates about immigration now, pre-climate migration. <laughs> so the, I hope we get something sorted out because I, I think questions of immigration is only going to get uh, more pronounced, you know, and, and we got we to gotta figure that stuff out. So the, the point of saying all of this is that climate change isn't just about, of course, so-called saving the trees. And, I, and I'm glad that culturally we've we understand that it's a lot bigger than sort of just those slogans. Mm -hmm. It's really about restructuring how our economies and societies will function because human beings in our modern industrial capitalist societies have influenced the environments in ways that has not been, uh, you know, happened or recorded before in human history because of largely CO2 emissions through industrial capitalism. You know, in his keynote, Vic Barrett, invoked a couple of terms that I really appreciated talking both about racism and the other one was extractive capitalism. So mm. not just capitalism by itself, but really making it a more visceral term, which I think is very well suited to it of, you know, just having that, that visual of it extracting resources and not giving back. Yeah. That's really what it does. Yeah, and that's what we need to, to transform in our economies, right? Because right now, fossil fuels, boom, awesome. You got some, some long-term carbon underneath the earth or whatever. Let's mm -hmm. extract that, use it, and once you've used it, it's gone. It ain't coming back, at least not for, for you know, hundreds of millions of years. Not until we're long dead. Not until we're long gone, so it's not coming back in any modern sense. And once you use it, it's gone. And so for so long, capitalism has... Uh, worked under that extractive logic and so much of the push for our future as a society and as human beings is to have more uh, sustainable, reciprocal, mutually beneficial uh, ecosystems, both you know literally in the environment but also metaphorically in our economies, to have things be reused. 
And so that might not mean, even though that carbon is right there, ready to be burned up and transformed, you know, transmogrified into energy, it might mean instead investing into more renewable sources like solar, wind, water, etc., which might not be as most immediately profitable, but we can make it profitable. Because remember, we invented the economy. The economy does not exist under its own logic. There's no such thing as the economy as it stands. You know, oh, is the economy doing strong? Is the economy doing weak? Uh, GDP, profit, all that stuff. None none of that stuff actually inherently exists. What actually inherently exists is the fact there's like the sun that's burning, you know, the wind that's blowing, the water that's that's, that's waving around. And so uh, when we say that carbon is more profitable than you know, when we say that fossil fuels are more profitable than, say, solar, it's just because we've made it that way. And, and we can change that. We can change that, and it would require some sacrifices, but in the long term, it would, it would win out a lot more with benefits. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to add is that these changes alone, which was the point of the keynote, these changes alone are not enough to actually address what's needed for climate justice. So having all of those resources available, but still having carbon is an issue. And I don't know if that's where you were necessarily going, but this requires not only a full switch, but the ability for everyone to be able to afford these different resources. So not making them a luxury item is absolutely essential. The climate justice movement is inherently um, anti-poverty. It is inherently a movement that wants to lift people out of poverty because it recognizes that these two things just can't go together. That's a great point. And just a reminder that you're tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM in WXIR in Rochester. We're talking on the first half of today's show about our 51st, 51st celebration of Earth Day and also the, uh, the last day of a 22-long campaign by a local organization known as the Climate Solutions Accelerator of the Genesee Finger Lakes region. You can check out their 22-day campaign and lots of other initiatives that they're taking locally to fight for our future and climate solutions by going to the webpage at climate gfl.org that's climate gfl.org in the second half of today's show we'll be joined by past guest graham hughes and talking about the proposal to form a new european super league in soccer that would concentrate wealth and power in the hands of already the most wealthy and powerful teams in european soccer and it would transform it with profound implications you can participate in today's show by giving us a call at 585-219-8889 and seeing our live stream and on Facebook and being able to comment there at Radio EOD. I would like to bring up one more point from the keynote speech, which is a lawsuit that is currently in progress uh, that Vic Barrett, again, who was the keynote speaker on this last day of the 22-day climate um sort of conference is a plaintiff in. So this is a lawsuit called Juliana versus the United States. The plaintiffs, there are 21. They are all younger people. So I think when they started, the youngest was eight years old. Uh, that kid is now, I think, 14. 
Um, so this has been going on since the Obama administration, but it is a, a lawsuit against the federal government that these children are bringing and accusing the federal government of violating their basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness through the lack of action uh, on the federal government in the past five or six administrations. Basically, they're laying out in their court case that the federal government had information and was aware of the climate crisis and did not do enough about it to change the future, and that now it is putting their own citizens in immediate danger maybe not in the next five years, but certainly within their lifetimes, that they are not going to have the same kinds of opportunities that past generations have had because of the way that the government refused to make changes. Yeah, I, I'm not much of a, a legal scholar, but I, I don't know what the you know chances are that this lawsuit succeeds, but at least the point is, is saying that you know, the today's generations, today's young folks don't didn't have a say in how uh, the actions of people whom they're supposed to trust, right? Adults, experts, leaders, and tackling climate change. Much the same as the global South doesn't have the so-called global South, right? It's a pejorative term. Much the same as the so-called pejorative South doesn't really have a say in how the wealthiest, highest polluting countries how they tackle climate change, right? They're, they're essentially, what can Fiji do to tell the United States to stop emitting? Not much, you know? And yeah. so it's up to the goodwill of the international community to see how it benefits all human beings and not just short-term green profit. And and that, of course, is the stickiest piece of climate change is how do you get someone to take action on something that seems to them doesn't be inherently interest to the short-term profits? The same can be talked about with racism. You know, how can you get a white person to recognize that uh, things like affirmative action don't take away, you know, in the grand scheme, right. their power or privilege. How do you get that to happen? How do you get wealthy individuals, wealthy corporations, hedge funds, businesses, individuals to focus more on providing, you know, services to their workers like healthcare to raise their wages, even though it would uh, perhaps lessen the profits of their shareholders. The, these big sticky problems that really fundamentally boils down to the stuff you learn in kindergarten, which is how do you be a good neighbor? <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> how, do you, how do you treat other people the way they deserve to be treated? Yeah. Well, some good news so far, Jason. In the speech, Vic mentioned that they have, uh, in this lawsuit, so far won all but one decision in the court system. They're currently in district court. So I'm not exactly sure how many there have been, but that is good news. And currently they're trying to come into contact with the Biden administration and bring them to the table to discuss progressive climate change. I think part of the lawsuit is not just to say, you know, we want to win you out in court. It's really to bring a vision. It's to bring a vision of progressive climate justice legislation to the United States because whether or not they win all of their court decisions, people are still going to see that. People are still going to see how serious of an issue it is if they're paying attention. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great chance to raise awareness on a, a dire, dire issue. Yes. And apparently so far, the Biden administration has not been very forthcoming, but hopefully 
hopefully that will change. Well, let's talk about what some governments, what some of our governments are doing in response to climate change or are not doing. Let's take a look first, uh, very briefly, just to name sort of a statistic on a national level. So this past week, the Biden administration held its first international summit with other leaders. It was on climate change, uh, mainly for you know the celebration of Earth Day. And this week, the Biden administration announced that the U.S. will cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030 based on 2005 levels. So get your calculators out. Get your auditory processing skills out over radio. <laughs> <laughs> so the U.S. will cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 50% within the next decade based on 2005 levels. So yeah, I, I just have to wonder what the levels are in 2021 that they're not focusing on. Yeah, I mean, you can look it up in graphs, and I've seen different graphs that are like, well, we slightly you know, pollute more, we slightly pollute less. I, I, I should have done stronger research on that for the show, but uh, you know, I, I too wonder why we're basing our emissions on levels that are 15 years old. <laughs> I, I wonder yeah. that too. There must be a reason. And the reason is probably either to give the government an easier goal or to give the government a more ambitious goal. Not sure which one. But yeah. you know, if you know 585-219-8889 or comment with us at Radio EOD on Facebook. So that's the Biden administration announced cutting the U.S.'s greenhouse gas emissions in half over the next decade based on 2005 levels. That would be a profound change. That would change our economies and society. Let's look at locally. The in Rochester, in 2017, the city of Rochester created their Rochester Climate Action Plan. I, I didn't know this was a thing <laughs> until I was doing research for the show, so that's kind of interesting. The report is online on the city's website, Rochester Climate Action Plan. It's also cited in something that we did cover, and that's more recent. That is the Rock 2034 plan. That is the city's sort of comprehensive strategy for how Rochester will look in 2034 in celebration of its 200th birthday. Right, and, and that was adopted in 2019. Right. And in that Rock 2034 plan, they cite in their section about climate change, the 2017 Rochester Climate Action Plan. In both of the aforementioned, Rochester has pledged to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030, based on 2010 levels. So long story short, it's very similar to the federal government's uh, initiative, right? Very similar to the federal government's proposal. Well, let's get into specifics. How would we actually reduce our greenhouse gas emissions? Well, that's based on really two things, two strategies. One is mitigation. That would address the root cause of emissions by, re by uh, reducing the source of which greenhouse gas emissions are produced. So mitigation addresses the root cause, lessens emission of greenhouse gases. There's also adaptation. That is less perhaps progressive, but still necessary because most scientists say that no matter what the most dire actions that we take right now, climate change will still affect us in some form and fashion. Sure. And so we must prepare for the future that is already in motion. And that is where adaptation comes into play, where we must adjust to the expected or actual impacts that climate change will have on us. So through both mitigation and adaptation, there are things that we as a society and country can do. You know, in this climate action plan, it's quite extensive. There are, you know, more specific things. But in general, it talks about transforming to more energy efficient homes. It talks about investing in more public transit and biking and walking paths. My favorite. Indeed. You are the transportation guru here. 
It talks about investing in efficient vehicles and car sharing strategies. It talks about investing in more waste reduction and diversion strategies and other forms of renewable energy. So still kind of speaking broad here, but there are, you know, there are more specific places you can go or turn to to learn. We just don't have the time to cover them right now on the show. But again, you can find the Rochester Climate Action Plan, the 2017 report on those initiatives or the Rock 2034 plan on the city's website talking about Rochester's plan to cut climate change. It's very important stuff, especially when we consider, you know, in the in the climate action plan that oh boy, where'd the page go? That so oh, that most of the emissions in the Rochester area apparently 52% of CO2 emissions locally in Rochester come from homes, just residential homes. Mm-hmm. So majority of emissions come from homes. 35% come from businesses, you know, commercial properties, and 13% come from industrial. So we have sort of a 10% come from more industrial zoning areas. Most, however, come from residential areas. And just to bring this idea back to the thought, the focus on climate justice rather than just climate change, I think looking at how these effects are happening in the city of Rochester is really important. You know, if we see that emissions are coming from 50 percent, 50% of emissions are coming from homes, and we know that within the city of Rochester, almost half of the population lives in poverty, we know that those people are not going to be able to make changes on their own. So we're really going to need structural change that comes from the municipality, that comes from the county to make those changes actually happen. Yeah. And those folks, by the way, these poor individuals who uh, would love to have changes to their homes, to have more insulation, to have better heating and cooling systems, you know, to have more energy efficient systems. Those folks would love that, you know, and and that's why we get into such a tricky situation. We talk about climate change where those most affected by it are not those who have really the power to make the differences. And so (laughs) we, we really need to make sure that we are holding folks accountable, those who have the ability to affect changes, and that we remind ourselves that we are all in this together because climate change affects all of us, and it is in all of our interests to invest in renewable sources of energy to ensure that our futures are one that is habitable, healthy, and productive. So we will end the first part of today's show talking about climate change there, and after a very short break, we're going to hear from good friend and previous guest Graham Hughes as we talk about the proposed European Super League to consolidate wealth and power, arguably, in European soccer. We'll be right back on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR. Hang on. And we're back on Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're going to talk now about proposal this past week in European soccer to propose what is no- what was <laughs> potentially known as the Super League. This was a proposal to bring together the largest and perhaps wealthiest and most well-known and popular clubs in European soccer to form their own league, similar to how we do sports here in America with, say, the NFL or the NBA, that would radically transform European soccer. We'll get into how European soccer works and what the implications are of this proposal with our guest now on the phones, Graham Hughes, who's a past guest on Evidence of Design. Graham, thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me. Can you guys hear me okay? You are coming through for us. Thanks so much. So, Graham, you are multi-talented, but you're also our on-the-ground reporter for soccer because, you know, Mary played soccer when she was younger. I think I've touched a soccer ball in my life twice. I tripped (laughs) over them both of the time. So um, I don't know much about sports. Soccer, I'm pretty sure you play it with your hands, right? Um, I I also heard it's called football. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. But, Graham, you're here to, to set the record straight with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on with the Super League proposal and, you know, how closely were you following that? Yeah, so for the last, like, six to eight months, there was this rumor going around in, you know, European soccer uh, about the potential for a Super League started by the biggest clubs in all of Europe. And last Sunday night, kind of out of nowhere, Uh, a committee of owners of these teams, of 12 teams in particular, came out and published a letter that said they were intending to start a European Super League next year. And it threw the soccer world into chaos uh, very quickly. The Super League was going to be composed of 15 founding clubs. So these initial 12 clubs were going to find three more. Uh, those 15 clubs would never be able to be uh, relegated or expelled from the league, but uh, the, the league would also be composed of 15, or, I'm sorry, five other clubs that would be added on a yearly basis, kind of uh, promoted to the Super League based on the, their domestic league play. Um, this league was going to happen in the middle of the week, so it would have happened right uh, right at the same time that the current UEFA Champions League happens, which is the, like the top club competition in all of Europe, um, and effectively would would mean that these 12 clubs or these 15 founding clubs would no longer participate in the, the UEFA Champions League, which is huge. Um, so this, uh, yeah, it was all it was all pushed by this committee of the owners of these clubs, and really didn't involve the fans, the management of the clubs, the players of the clubs really anybody else um, involved in European soccer other than these 12 owners. So, Graham, I'm... It's been, a, it's been... Yeah. I'm American, Graham. You're American. We're all American here. And, you know, we grew up loving the idea of internationalism and also, you know, the best and most powerful making decisions. I, You know, you go to the movies, <laughs> you see Marvel, you see the Justice League, right? The coolest, baddest, most powerful folks saving the day. What what's wrong with this proposal of having the most popular, at least you know by fan size, group of soccer leagues in Europe forming their own league? You know what is wrong with that? How would it transform European soccer for arguably the worse? Well, there's 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 a couple things that are really wrong with it. Um, the the big one that I'll start with is that it totally uh, totally disrupts the European football pyramid system. So all throughout all throughout Europe, in in each country in Europe, uh, each country has its own domestic leagues. So like in England, this is the Premier League. In Germany, this is the Bundesliga. In, uh, in in Italy, it's the Serie A. But they also have like a, a, a bunch of other lower leagues below that that top domestic league. So in in England, I think there's like nine or ten different leagues, all at the professional level. And the way that this pyramid system works is that in theory, uh, the clubs at the lowest level can go can make it all the way to the top. Because um, at the end of every season, clubs are promoted to the league above them, 
based on how well they did the season before and relegated to the league below them based on how poorly they did the season before. So in the Premier League, at the end of every season, the bottom three clubs are relegated to the championship, which is the league below, and the top three clubs in the championship are promoted to the Premier League. And this is the same way that uh, that clubs are chosen to be in the Champions League every year. So at the end of every season, the top four clubs from the Premier League uh, are put into the Champions League, which is this big, uh, all of, like, across-Europe club competition that lasts throughout the whole year. And the Super League, because those 15 founding clubs would never be able to be promoted or relegated from the from the Super League, they'd always be playing in the league, um, uh, they, that, that kind of system just destroys the pyramid system. Um, and this pyramid system is really important, not only in terms of sporting merit, that like the clubs that are promoted and relegated are done, are, uh, you know, suffer those results or, or achieve those results because of the, the skill of their play, how well they play, um, but it also has really big financial impacts on these clubs. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the Premier League makes an incredible amount of broadcasting money um, but that, that money, you know, is really driven by the big six clubs, but it trickles down and it affects all these other clubs. Um, the same thing goes in the Champions League. You know, you have the, the top teams from the top league competing in the Champions League, but you also have the top teams from, like, the Belgian League and the Croatian League who, are, who don't make a lot of money in broadcasting in their, their tiny domestic markets, but make a lot of money um, on, on broadcasting when they play in the Champions League. So those are two of the big reasons, and this is all. This stuff is all really deeply connected to history and tradition in Europe. Um, like the big six clubs in in uh, in England right now, which include Manchester United, Man City, Tottenham, Chelsea, uh, Arsenal, and Liverpool. They're they're the big six clubs financially, and in some cases, in terms of you know how good they are at the sport. But that was not always the case. Twenty years ago, Manchester City was in the third division. Uh, and 40, 50 years ago, so were clubs like Tottenham and Arsenal. Um, they like the, the the clubs who were top of these leagues has changed dramatically over time. Uh, so much so that in like the 1980s, the top club in all of Europe was an English club called Nottingham Forest, who don't even play anywhere near the Premier League now. I'm sure most people have never even heard of Nottingham Forest, but they were winning the Champions League back in the 70s and 80s. So it's just this this proposal for a super league just totally undermines the the this the the pyramid of European soccer. It takes away the the merit of the sport and the the idea that winning is the only thing that you need to do uh to succeed and in playing well is the only thing you need to do to succeed um and the the owners of these clubs did all this without talking to anybody at any of their clubs. They just did it unilaterally for the broadcasting funding um and that has thrown uh that's gotten a lot of people really 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 mad at them. So if I'm hearing you correctly Graham, European soccer operates quite differently than a lot of American sports do. You're saying that there there's sort of a, a pyramid scheme such that folks based on their, you know, meritocratic performance, how well they perform or perhaps how poorly they perform in a season can go up and down in certain leagues. So for instance, the, the Rochester Wed Wings, uh, locally, they're, in, they're a minor league baseball team, AAA. If they performed well, say, in this European-style system, they could then go up to the highest league, which would be the equivalent of, of, of the MLB. Or 
I know we're going to get real sad here, but the Buffalo Bills didn't have the strongest of seasons for, uh, you know, a couple decades. <laughs> they might not be in the NFL if this was a if this was a European system. So that might sound, you know, either scary or good, depending on uh, where you are. But I think one of the benefits of this European system is that there are soccer clubs that are very local, very neighborhood entrenched, very community based, and, and essentially... Uh, so many, you know, essentially all communities across Europe. And that's very different than in America where the largest teams, say, in the NFL are really based on their, on the city. For instance, in, in St. Louis, the Rams, perhaps famously or infamously, moved to L.A. And so if, if you're in St. Louis, Missouri, and you're a Rams fan all your life, you're probably pretty sad to see your football team move across the entire country to L.A., Right. And so it creates this kind of system of winners and losers where in this European system, at least in theory, any team can can rise or fall. Am I getting all of that correctly, Graham? Yeah, that's a that's you, that's pretty much it. You got it. The like the, the thing I would add is that money does impact the, this this system, like your ability, your financial uh, assets, your money. They they uh, they will let you recruit. And, and pay really high quality players and managers. So it's uh, it's not all based on merit. Like it is, like you know, the clubs that win, they they they, they succeed. The clubs that do that do poorly, they they get relegated. Um, and in theory, the club from the the lowest league could go all the way to the highest league, and vice versa. Um, but money does have a big impact. Although it's not a not a totally complete impact like it doesn't rule everything you know i think one of the best examples of this is that back in 2016 leicester city won the premier league they beat out all the big six clubs despite having a, a budget uh, of a fraction the size of those big clubs um, and played incredible incredibly beautiful football that whole season um, and they've been doing really well ever since they're in the top four of the premier league right now they've regularly been in the top four since 2016 um, and that's totally changed. That totally changed the dynamics of the Premier League. So it, uh, there really is a lot of uh, a lot of merit and uh, sporting ability that impacts these leagues. And getting rid of that would destroy European footballing tradition and culture. We've talked about the Super League in the past tense a few times. Tell us about what the what the reality looks like for the Super League being formed and what was the reaction like across Europe from fans, players, team owners to the formation of this league? It was pretty incredibly universally negative from players to managers to pundits speak like, you know, former players that that go on the news and talk about this stuff. Um, managers of other clubs, like the the leaders of Euro- European footballing governing bodies, like UEFA, like the Premier League, um, it was very negative and very serious. Like a lot of these big governing bodies came out and said that, you know, for example, if any players play in the European Super League, they would be banned from playing uh, for their national teams. And for most players, playing for your national team in a competition like the World Cup is the pinnacle of your career. Wow, it's yeah. the, the highest thing that you can strive for. Um, the the Premier League threatened to kick all six big clubs out of the Premier League if they went forward with this Super League uh, proposal in the fall. Um, and it's, so it's been universally negative. And uh, as a result of that, within about 48 hours, the proposal 
gone. It was off the table. All these clubs backed out, started issuing statements saying that they were no longer pursuing it, that they, quote-unquote, listened to their fans um, and, and pulled out. And uh, some clubs even apologized for this. <laughs> but So the Super, the Super League is no longer going forward because of this incredible... Uh, an incredibly negative backlash from the entire European soccer community. We're talking about the proposed formation of a European Super League in soccer with Graham Hughes. He's on the phone with us, who's our honorary soccer reporter. <laughs> You're listening to <laughs> Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Graham, you just mentioned the sort of universal backlash against the Super League. The presidents of UEFA, you've mentioned them a few times, if I can get their acronym correct, it's the Union of European Football Associations. The president's name, I believe, is Alexander Seferin, if I'm pronouncing that correct. He he really, I, I pulled one of the statements he made in response to the Super League. It's really remarkable how sort of excoriating he was. He He called the those executives involved in forming the Super League, quote, snakes, and that they, quote, spit in the face of football lovers. And he says, quote, for some, supporters have become consumers, fans have become customers, and competitors or competitions have become products. Selfishness is replacing solidarity. Money has become more important than glory, greed more important than loyalty, and dividends more important than passion. It's quite a statement from the president of one of you know Europe's top soccer governing bodies. If this was so, if the if the formation of the Super League was so sort of negatively received by it seems everyone in Europe, why would it have been proposed in the first place? Who were the people proposing this then? Well, it's the owners of these clubs, and most of the owners of these clubs uh, are. You know, powerful individual, very rich people. Uh, a handful of them, not even a handful, many of them uh, do not even come from the countries in, in which this football is being played. So like Manchester City, for example, is owned by a member of the, the, the royal family of Abu Dhabi. Um, it's basically a state-owned club by uh, Abu Dhabi. Um, the, my favorite club, Arsenal, is owned by a man named Stan Kroenke, who's an American businessman who owns uh, the Los Angeles Rams as well. Um, uh, Chelsea, another great example, is owned by a Russian oligarch. So these these owners, you know, they came they came together mostly just to make money. They're very disconnected from the history of the club, the culture of the club. Um, most of them don't even go to games, like Stan Kroenke at Arsenal has maybe been to an Arsenal game once in the <laughs> seven years that he's been the owner of the club. Um, it's like they're just so disconnected, and they just want to make money. And this all this all comes at the to uh, in, within the context of the pandemic and the economic recession and what that did to European football. Um, the pandemic, which resulted in in lockdowns for most of the last year. Uh, took away a whole bunch of revenue from these clubs, uh, specifically fan revenue, you know, uh, and uh, attendance revenue. They they were no longer having fans come to watch games in the stadium, um, and so they they needed a source of revenue uh, to to make up for that. Uh, and many of these clubs have been making really really bad financial decisions over the last decade or so. Um, something that's been going on in in European football is that the price of transfers 
for the price that you pay to to buy a new player from another club and bring him to your club uh, has skyrocketed. It's it's ballooned out of control. Um, there there are players that are being bought and sold regularly for more than a hundred million dollars. Does that uh, mean that that's absolutely. their salary, or what does it mean to buy a player? So when uh, when a club wants to bring a new player on from another club, they have to pay the club that currently holds that player's contract a transfer fee. This transfer fee will let the will the uh, allows the club to release that player from its current contract and allow the player to leave and sign a new contract with the the other club. So that's that's what it means to buy a player is to pay that transfer fee to release the player from their current contract. Oh, okay, gotcha. And and regularly, players are being that that transfer fee is is costing teams more than seventy, eighty, ninety, even a hundred million dollars regularly. Wow! Um, and it's it's just absolutely insane. And on top of that, a number of major clubs like uh, Barcelona, in particular, have made a number of really really bad uh, player and transfer decisions over the last decade. You know, they've paid hundreds of millions of dollars for a handful of players, most of whom don't even play for the club. They just, they've gone out on loan, they've been injured, they just, they, they have not done well. Uh, and they play, they pay these players incredible amounts of money. You know, I'm talking like three, four, five hundred thousand pounds uh, or euros in salaries every week, which is just absolutely oh insane. Every week? Yeah, it's insane. Every week. Yeah, every week. Lionel, Lionel Messi makes almost a million dollars a week. In his uh, for his contract with Barcelona, which is just nuts, uh, and that's the case for a number of other players. So what what all this has done to these clubs is it's created an incredible amount of debt. Uh, they have an incredible amount of debt because to finance a lot of these transfers and pay, play, and pay these uh, player contracts, they have to take out loans because uh, they because they've lost a lot of revenue from from uh, getting fans in the stadiums. Even before that, they were taking out loans for these to buy these players. So a lot of these clubs, you know, they want to make money, but they're also in really bad, you know, financial condition despite being some of the wealthiest uh, sporting enterprises in the entire world. Um, so all these all these factors together kind of brought these owners to propose, you know, a, a super club or a super league. I'm sorry to start this coming fall. Um, it is it was estimated that broadcasting revenues from the super league would be upwards of four billion dollars every year, which is a lot of money for these clubs. Um, so that was that's that's been the driving force and why they why they decided to pursue these things. And some of the owners of these clubs, you know, despite the collapse of the Super League this time around, are still really fighting for it. Uh, Florentino Perez, who's the the owner of Real Madrid uh, and the basically the leader of the Super League uh, group, is still fighting for this, still saying that that he wants to pursue it. And a number of Real Madrid supporters actually are behind him, which is unique. Most most clubs are and their supporters are very against this. I want to highlight some of the specifics of the owners that you've been talking about. It's, it's really striking when you look at who owns these clubs and, and how these folks came together to make this proposal. You mentioned already that the owner of Arsenal is an American. 
Also, the, the owner of Liverpool is an American group, which also owns the Boston Red Sox. The owner of the Milan team is owned by an American hedge fund. So when you, when you look at it, 33% of these you know, 12 teams that were going to form the Super League were American-owned. Only 50% of the teams in the Super League would have been owned by owners or groups domestically. <laughs> and also, uh, they would have... The, the Super League would have gotten a lot of its financing from American bank J.P. Morgan Chase. So yeah. when we're talking about this European Super League, it's not just a, just a, a problem over the pond, but it's really, I think, based a lot of its monetization schemes off of American sports, American enterprise, and much of its architects were Americans and from the American finance industry. Graham, oh, for- definitely, yeah. For the last few minutes that we have remaining, though, I just want to ask you locally about soccer here in Rochester. I know you play soccer locally. Uh, just in general, how is soccer in Rochester for those interested in playing soccer? You know, what is it like? Are the teams? Is the culture? Is the community? And uh, you know, how is the soccer experience for you here locally in Rochester? It's been great. There's a there's a really great uh, soccer community here in Rochester. Um, I've been really fortunate to to be able to play a lot of soccer as an adult in competitive leagues since I moved here about four years ago. Um, so Rochester has, you know, the, a couple organizations, uh, the Rochester Sports Garden, Total Sports Experience, that run adult leagues um, many nights during the week and on, on the weekends for adults and for kids. Um, that's been, I've played a lot, of, a lot of soccer through those groups. Um, Rochester also has the longest-running uh, amateur soccer league in the United States, wow. the Rochester District Soccer League, which is pretty cool. It's been running for, I think, around 100 years, um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, we also have a, a handful of amateur or semi, semi-pro clubs um, and, you know, dozens of, probably more than dozens of private clubs that, uh, especially for, for kids, will play in uh, all sorts of travel leagues outside of uh, outside of the school school leagues that we have. So um, if you're looking to, to get involved and find a team to play, I'd say definitely check out Total Sports Experience and Rochester Sports Garden. You can go right to their websites. They have free agent lists that you can sign up for um, to get on to get onto like a, a house team, um, and it's it's a lot of fun. Graham, we really appreciate you coming back on Evidence of Design and sharing with us about soccer. I'm going to go try to find out what this football thing is all about. Appreciate your time, Graham. Thanks for having me. It's great talking with you, too. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And thank you, all listeners, for joining us for today's episode of Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're going to have to end today's show here. In the first half of the hour, we talked about the 51st celebration of Earth Day, a 22-day-long conference and campaign by the local Climate Solutions Accelerator and their keynote address on this past Earth Day about climate justice. You can find more information about them at climategfl.org. We also talked about local and national proposed solutions to climate change, like here in Rochester and by the Biden administration, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we just heard from Graham, Graham Hughes, who was talking with us about a proposal this week to form the European Super League in soccer. You can always find our past episodes of Evidence of Design on YouTube by searching for the Evidence of Design channel. We're also available as a podcast. 
wherever you get your podcast. Big thanks to WXIER for providing this platform for Grassroots Radio. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined in WXIR Studios by my good friend and co-host, Mary Lawrence. Have a great day. Until next time, everyone, be well, be safe, take care, and bye-bye.